Hello and welcome to the Methods Matter podcast from Dementia Researcher and the National Centre for Research Methods, the show that tries to make sense of research methods to help me and you understand them. In this series, we will be looking at five different research methods with a resident method expert and a dementia researcher that has put the method into practice. And today it's all about oral histories and storytelling. But before we get to that, let me introduce myself. I'm Dr. Danica Mullen, a psychiatrist and PhD clinical fellow at the University of Edinburgh. Before doing medicine, I qualified as a physiotherapist, and now I combine the physical and mental aspects of aging by researching a walking speed-based pre-dementia syndrome called motoric cognitive risk. To put it simply, it's a syndrome combining slow walking speed and self-reported memory or thinking problems in older people without dementia. I took on the mission of hosting this second season because I'm not a qualitative researcher, but I'd like to work out which of these methods I could use to improve my work. Undeterred by her experience in the first season, I'm delighted to welcome our now resident expert on all things research methods, Dr. Karen Hughes from the University of Leeds. Karen is director of the Timescapes Archive, editor-in-chief of Sociological Research Online, convener of the MA Qualitative Research Methods, and a senior fellow for the National Centre for Research Methods. Hello, Karen. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks so much, Donica. How, how's it going? It's going well. I have a little bit of a dry mouth, but it's going well. <laughs> Karen, when the last season was recorded, you'd just taken up scuba diving. Have you managed to get in the water lately? Um, I haven't done any more scuba diving. Uh, it's just really scary and I'd have to G myself up for it again. Um, But I have started wild water swimming, which basically means going into the sea when it's really cold during the winter in your swimming costume um, and splashing about a bit. (laughs) Wonderful. Are there any places close by to where you work or where you stay? Yeah, I'm on the coast in in North Wales. So I've, I've got the whole of the North Wales coastline. It's absolutely gorgeous. Sounds amazing. Moving on, our jobbing researcher for today is Dr. Katia Sion, postdoctoral researcher and linking pin from Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Katia's research looks at the quality of residential elderly care from the resident's perspective, and she describes herself as incredibly impatient and curious, two attributes which she has found to be useful skills within academia. Hello, Katia. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. We're delighted to have you here. Katia, so before we start, I must ask, your job title said you're a linking pin. I need to know more about this. Also, I spotted you're a new mum, which I can relate to as a new dad. So maybe we can talk about sleepless nights and compare notes on how to cope. <laughs> well, to first uh, zoom into your last question, I think if I get into motherhood, we may be talking about that the whole po- podcast. So uh, I won't be doing that today. <laughs> And then to actually get back to the linking pin, I'm actually very proud of this position because uh, where I work at the university in our department, we've um, established a living lab in aging and long-term care. One of the first, I think worldwide even, and it's actually a collaboration between four um, universities, applied universities, vocational institutes, and nine long-term care organizations in which we collaborate and work together to combine practice and research more closely. And as a linking pin, I'm actually appointed one day a week to one of these long-term care organizations to really get to know the lay of the land, to, to see if there's links, to, yeah, to make sure that the research that we're performing also actually suits what practice is, yeah, is in need of instead of just doing desk research. So it's, it's really, uh, yeah, it really makes the job a lot of fun. That sounds fascinating. And do you imagine once COVID restrictions lift further that you'll be traveling a lot between the different institutions? Yeah, the idea is that I really get to know first the organization that I am appointed to, that I get to know that very well. And then also, of course, that I learn from the other organizations so we can also really disseminate our knowledge. And to a certain extent, we are doing that. We also did that during COVID time. I'm sure, I bet. Okay, so down to business. What do I know? So we begin each podcast with me giving a summary of what I understand to be the method we're exploring, which of course today is oral histories and storytelling. When I first considered what oral histories and storytelling methods were about, I thought, 
This is going to be easy because what it means is right there in the title, but I suspect I'm going to get caught out by this. So let's start by saying, once upon a time, like every good story should. Here goes. My best guess at what this method involves is listening and capturing people's stories, thinking about their life, childhood, memories, with a focus on preserving the story maybe through audio or video recording, maybe more with a view that this will be helpful to researchers in future generations. For example, I can imagine in 10, 20, 100 years time how interesting a recording from the last two years of people's experience of going through the COVID pandemic would be. Karen, put the record straight and introduce the method for us. Okay. Um so these methods, they um, emerge at a time uh, when in social science, we're becoming more interested not only in describing these large scale social processes and social change, but we're also um, interested in how we might be able to observe these changes through what people are doing and thinking. So um, to research that um, we begin to develop biographical methods. So there's this, there's a couple of um, uh, turns, if you like, that have been described as happening. So one is the biogra uh, biographical turn in social sciences research, where researchers turn to look at biography rather than at large scale processes. And then also a, a narrative turn, because obviously what we're asking people to do is uh, you know, tell me about your lives. Um, and therefore, we're trying to elicit these longer term narratives or narratives that cover a longer period in people's lives, um, which brings in um, a host of um, methodolog new methodological questions um, that uh, need to be addressing. Now, we've got um, oral history method and storytelling methods um, in the one podcast, but actually they're two different methodologies there, there. and so I'm going to deal with each but then I'm going to clarify the links between them so all history methods it's a way of asking questions um, is as a means of recording um, an oral testimony like a living testimony and by that I mean um, people describing periods in their lives or describing their whole lives um, both as uh, 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 an, uh, in terms of an individual, you know, obviously from their own um, perspectives, but the oral history itself becomes a process of encouraging someone to describe a period of history. So they're about individual and collective histories. Um, and what's really lovely about oral histories is that they are sort of products. So they're not only just ways of engaging, but, but what you produce is an oral history and maybe an archive or a cache or a collection of oral histories, oral testimonies, so that they can stand as a, a matter of history for other people in, into the future. Um, and I think, interestingly, I'm going to be keen to get um, Katia's take a little bit later. For our discussion, oral history means relying on people's memories and, and recollection. So, the other thing, obviously, for me, uh, I'm really um, keen on methods of qualitative secondary analysis. Oral histories are meant to be reused. Um, so they become historical artefacts that can be examined in the future. And that's different to like interviews that are usually considered to be um, only to be used by the originating research team. But obviously, in qualitative secondary analysis, there's a big push. No, no, don't don't just think in those ways. So storytelling is slightly different. Um, a lot of human history is told through story um, and in actual fact has been stored um, through, through stories, through narratives. Um, and we know cross-culturally that there continue to be, you know, really strong storytelling um, con uh, uh, traditions that combine um, communities and nations that tell and preserve their histories and heritage so you know that that storytelling um, and storytelling techniques can be similar to oral histories they're narratives that have been built up using bits of people's life through skillful questioning um, but normally in storytelling in research what we're asking is uh, uh, people to focus on a particular 
events. So, for example, you know, with newly married couples or, oh, you say, well, tell me the story of how you met, you know, so that that sort of very focused tale of a, of a particular set of events or whatever. So the commonalities. Uh, oral histories are a form of story, inevitably. Um, they've been elicited from the participant in order to produce this narrative thread, a sort of connective narrative that pulls together the bits of their lives as they lived over time. Um, they're usually a theme to those histories, um, so they connect to methods like life histories, so life history interviews, you know, use those, those similar sorts of techniques. Um, and that storytelling can be used to ex explore, you know, like particular points uh, along someone's life history, or can be used to combine events in ways that um, produce new oral histories. Fascinating, Karen. Okay. Thank you so much for that amazing and, and informative yet succinct intro. Um, I had one quick question and it, yeah. it, there may not be an easy answer. It, it, yeah. Is there a rule of thumb, say, on when an oral history interview you've, you've recorded, when that becomes historical enough to actually use in your research? You know, as a, as a PhD student, can you interview people and then use that as oral history or does it need to, does it need to be a certain amount of time between the... The, the no, no, you can treat it as an oral. It's, it's an oral history straight off the bat. I think the challenge for the researcher is to engage precisely with that question of time, or, or, or how we might describe it as temporal remove. So, how how close am I? How imminent am I in in the moment of that history's production, or how remote am I from that? And what is the challenge there? So, what do I lose from not being part of that same history? But then what might I gain from having that historical distance and the ability to build in um, historical comparison, you know, from one time to another, if you like. OK, OK, I like that a lot. <laughs> Why, Karen, would someone choose this method? Which one? Storytelling well, or history? Say, <laughs> say storytelling, first yeah. of all. So we might use storytelling in order to get a real sense of how somebody um, made sense of a particular aspect of their life and what the relevance of, of that now is when, when we're speaking to them. So I'm, I'm going to come to dementia just to say I'm not a dementia researcher. So this is purely speculative and I'm so keen to hear Katia's take on what I'm going to say. Um, uh, but um, if we're thinking, uh, are people experiencing um, dementia as a form of illness or how are, how are they understanding their experiences of, of dementia? How do they understand past and future? in the context of a dementia diagnosis or a pr progressive dementia over time. And so eliciting a story um, allows us into that process of sense making and how people, particularly in uh, where there were illness narratives, how they may build up um, ideas of good and bad times, because often they say, well, that was a phase and then this was a phase and then that's a phase. So then what you're also then able to build in analytically are points of comparison within the narrative itself, you know. So why might they say that that was good? Why was that bad? What is it that is problematic here? But what is what is good there? And that obviously helps us to then begin to think through what services we might want to um, provide or where service intervention is most necessary. And often... When people are most vulnerable and most in need of support, they're least capable of accessing help. And so stories might be able to show us those sorts of disjunctions between need and provision. Brilliant. Karen, thank you so much for that coverage of storytelling. Now, you, you said at the outset that there, there are two separate topics, even though we're covering them in the one topic. What are the main differences for you and why might someone use oral histories rather than storytelling? So, um, oral histories give us a much more comprehensive narrative of people, the longer duration of people's lives and also give, give us a sense of the times through which they, they've lived 
And as I said earlier, they're both they're both a form of engagement, but they're also a product of research. You know, we we seek to preserve them and, and reuse them. Um, so oral histories with people with dementia might actually be used in order to serve the interests of the participants, that people may feel the memory is going. And, and what they would really like to do is to provide um, a human testimony to, um, you know, to the, 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 the world that they have lived in and been part of and, and helped produce. So an oral history in that respect, in the context of dementia research, uh, might be something that researchers can provide, both for the participant and for their families. Brilliant. And before we move on to Katia, I had one other question around quest narrative. So, so I've read a little bit about linear and non-linear storytelling and some of my favourite movies of a non-linear storytelling approach. But what is a quest narrative? I had to Google this. So I'd not come across quest narratives myself before. Um, so, uh, you know, being a real sort of Tolkien lover, I know what a quest is. Um, but, you know, what the Dickens is a quest narrative. Um, so <laughs> so it, it's these are, these are narratives where you encourage somebody to think about a particularly, maybe a challenging aspect of their life or a goal that they would like to achieve. And, and what you do is encourage them to, um, you know, describe why um, this goal is important, what it is that they would want to do, why, why do they want to do it. Um, then you can encourage them to talk about, um, so I, I think you've got... Um, for me, I think that you've got some options here of engaging um, alongside people as they go through something, say engaging longitudinally or engaging prospectively. So where you can ask somebody, well, how would you get to that goal? What is it that you might need to do? What might be the difficulties of achieving that? And then maybe either connecting with them throughout the research or connecting retrospectively and saying, well, what actually happened? What were the challenges? What were the differences in expectation? Um, so quest narratives, I, so this was some of the papers that I've been reading who are particularly useful in illness um, because, uh, and I think this, uh, and again, Katia, if you've got some views on this, that would be great. But quest narratives, they put that person at the centre of the quest. So, if somebody is experiencing a, a difficulty, health-related difficulty, the narrative encourages them to focus specifically on their needs and on their abilities in the context of these challenges. And so uh, helps that person and other people to identify, again, which people might help along the way, uh, what might they need to support that quest, how might we get people to achieve those goals. But I, I also know that, for example, in stroke research, um, that people who have had a stroke um, and experience, you know, um, uh, 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 physical um, impairments as a consequence of, of, of stroke, um, that sometimes their goal is unreasonable, is they're not going to attain that. And, and that's, so a quest narrative might be really useful to support um, a longer term negotiation between healthcare providers and patients in order to establish more expectations both for them and their families around what can and, and can't be achieved. Okay, brilliant. I, when you mentioned Tolkien, I was kept bringing myself back to Frodo with his ring, getting yes. together his fellowship, uh, who can help him, who can't, uh, yeah, where exactly. he has to go. So that, thank you yeah, for, for, for bringing it to my who level. Are these, yeah, who are these magical people? You know, who are the, who are the key movers and shakers in, in helping this person? But the point about that is it's about that person's needs. It's not about the needs of anybody else. It's, it's, a, it's that very person-centred approach, which obviously maps on to patient-centred care, you know, narratives and, and uh, agendas for patient-centred care, where we understand people's health journeys or illness journeys as pathways through different healthcare settings. So Quest Narrative helps us to see that as well. Brilliant. When I, when I saw Quest Narrative, I thought, how is that going to be different to an interview? But I think you've explained it so clearly there that you can really see the differences. Katia, could I bring you into the conversation? Now, I know you use narrative inquiry and perspective triangulation. Are there any differences to what Karen described? 
Yeah, thanks so much uh, for letting me weigh into this conversation because uh, I've also already learned some new things. And for me, uh, I wasn't aware that there were so many different definitions of different types of narratives. So I hope I'm not going to disappoint Karen. I'm sure you won't. <laughs> um, I'll start with some of the similarities that I've heard. And especially at the end, I really heard some points. I was like, ah, this is exactly how we approach uh, our narratives as well. Uh, and that's mainly... It's not about what the interviewer wants to hear. It's about what the person being interviewed wants to tell, wants to share. And you as an interviewer, you can even argue, should you use that word? But to keep it clear for, for our listeners, I will use that word. Um, and as an interviewer, you are there to facilitate someone else to tell their story. And you will set a kind of framework in order to make sure that someone doesn't drift off completely. Because we all know if you start one story half an hour later, you may be talking about something completely different. So that is where the interviewer comes in, but it's really about the respondents, the storyteller's story. Um, and if we then also talk about person-centered care, I think this is exactly, this is what person-centered care is about. It's about the, the person receiving care. Yet then when we come to dementia, I do think it becomes a bit more complicated because as we know, people with severe dementia, they can have trouble to express themselves verbally. Yet that doesn't mean their stories are less relevant. So that's why we also use this um, perspective triangulation approach. And we often talk about relationship-centered care instead of person-centered care, in which we actually say, it's not just about the yeah, it's, it's not a one-way street. It's not about the care only for the person who is ill, but there's a whole network of involved stakeholders and they all have their own needs, expectations, and also experiences. Henceforth, if you really want to get into depth of a story, you need multiple perspectives to shine the light on a story. And then you have a much more complete overview. So I think that's maybe an addition to what has already been said and maybe a, a difference to how we approach our narratives. Sure. And, and Katya, is it OK with you if I start using the term relationship centred care in my clinical practice? <laughs> yeah, I, I am a, a big favour of it. I believe this is what, yeah, what quality of care is about. There's more people involved, so it's also not fair towards a care professional or the family members to let them like to weigh them out of the equation. You can't only give, you're also part of it. So your needs and expectations should also be considered. Absolutely. For so long, I felt some discomfort with talking about patient centered care when the only person I, I really knew because I took on the care of someone with fairly advanced dementia was the carer. And we it felt like I was sort of ignoring their needs just with the terminology I was I was using and, and is used in the multidisciplinary team and, and in all the paperwork and in all the patient information leaflets. So I really like that, Katia. Thank you so much um, for, for bringing that in. Now, could you tell us a little bit more about your research, Katia? Um, what other methods do you use, for example? Yeah, so maybe it's good to just yeah, paint the scope a little bit. Um, so my research actually in my PhD, I developed a narrative method to assess the quality specifically of nursing home care. So that's for people with dementia, also without, but we'll focus on people with dementia now, who are actually living in a nursing home and how you could assess quality of care from their perspective, because they used to use questionnaires for that. And we all know if someone says, well, the meal's here, I give them a seven, you still have no clue. What does that mean? How do I make it an eight? The average of the word was a seven, but does that mean one person gave a one and all of the others gave an eight? You don't really know that much yet. So that was, that was my task. Try and figure out a way how we can do this and actually get useful information so we can also improve quality for for individuals. So we actually also know what we need to improve. And, and what parts of that me methodological approach suit, suit your research question more than the questionnaire? I can see the problems with the questionnaire and ha ha have those problems been overcome using your approach? Um, those problems have been overcome and we've created new problems for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we developed a method, it's called connecting conversations. So that's actually based on this care triad that I was just talking about. You have the resident, the family member, and uh, yeah, an involved caregiver of the resident. And their three perspectives, they're central. And we've actually developed a whole theoretical framework around this triad saying that you have experiences beforehand and certain needs. Then you have the actual experience within your care triad, which is really formed not only by what is done, but also how it has been done, who has been involved. And then afterwards, you have an assessment of this in which you look what happened, how did it happen? Did it impact your health status in any way? And also, how did it make you feel? So often we tend to go straight towards satisfaction, just are you satisfied, yes or no? But from our framework, we actually have highlighted there's, much, yeah, there's many more components before being able to say if you're satisfied or not. Amazing. So, so it seems you've discovered more than seven out of ten. You've you, you've discovered what what happened, how, and 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 really importantly, the impact on how it, it makes each of these people of the triad feel. Fantastic. And when when you were talking to each person, each member of the care triad, did did you find that their perspectives differed? Um, I must say we really did actually, and we're really happy about that because otherwise you could argue if all three are going to tell the same, then don't spend the time on it because it, it is time consuming, of course, that's also one of the challenges we have. But what we really see is that quite often a resident will express something and a caregiver will maybe say the exact opposite, whereas both think the other one knows. So it, it makes very explicit that maybe there's not enough time also for for these short uh, conversations to express your needs. And residents also often feel they don't want to whine, they don't want to complain, so they'll keep it to themselves. But maybe, maybe a small example will help. Um, so there was a resident that said, oh, I'm so frustrated, they always keep me in bed till I'm one of the last ones that gets taken out of bed in the morning and I'm in so much pain, I, I want to get, get up. Whereas the, uh, the caregiver told us, we're so uh, happy to, to share with you that people can get up whenever they want here and uh, for this resident we, we, let, uh, we let him sleep in. Well, That's there's, there's a true mismatch, whereas you think you're providing proper quality of care and you would never detect this with a questionnaire. No. And instead you've had, well, have you had a therapeutic conversation? Or were, were all parties in, in the conversation at one time or did you talk to each individually? Um, we talked to them individually and um, to make it even more complex, it's not a researcher that performs the conversations, but we actually train care staff. So the interviewers are actually independent, even though they are aware of the nursing home setting. So that's very valuable because they also get a chance to have a peek somewhere else and also learn from these stories of residents and family members and other staff members that who they otherwise would have never met. Mm. And do the do, does each member of the triad find out the other person's perspective and, and, and in that way get a better understanding? Um, yeah, as it's research, we, in our informed consent, we ask them if it's okay to share the information, not anonymously, because usually you would do everything anonymously, of course, mm. but I think at least 75% nowadays, probably even more are okay with that. And then we can share it with the care team and also within the care triad. But you do want to keep that safe environment. Sure, sure. That's fantastic. So not only are you improving communication and clarifying what could be a lot of misunderstandings, but you're also training nursing staff to have those really helpful conversations. I love it. So now that we have a description of what the method is and an example of how it has been used, let's get into the detail and provide some top tips for anyone who is new to using the method. In this segment, I'm going to ask some quick, straightforward questions to both guests on how to put method into practice. Karen, the first ones are for you. Question one, how should someone prepare? Uh, so, and I'm going to come back to what uh, Katia said, is that I think it's better to ask, how can we enable somebody else to tell their story? Um, so researchers will always be thematizing a story. They will be structuring it in, in, in some way. Um, and so one of the decisions that you have to make in 
preparing for this sort of research is decide on how specific you want to go or how broad and both of those approaches have their own distinctive challenges so when it's very specific it can be quite constraining um, in shaping the stories that people give you um, and and then on the other hand being very wide it might be unstructured and sometimes less of a story more of a stream of consciousness so it's those sorts of judgments Brilliant. Question two. Can anyone participate or do you need to be selective in choosing people? For example, are, are shy people harder to work with? Say? Yeah, um, I think stories are great uh, because we all storify our everyday lives anyway. So stories are actually, we are narrative beings. You know, I mean, this is, you know, this, this is one of the really interesting things because people keep treating methods as tools, as if we've, they're sort of like a Lego kit. And, you know, we've, we've created the pieces and then we put it together. And somehow it sits outside of, um, you know, a, a, us as, as, as people and as, as human beings. When in actual fact, research methods are very reflective, particularly qualitative ones, are very reflective of who we are as people. So, for example, you know, you'll get up in the morning, you'll say to someone, I had a really bad night's sleep and I had a bad night's sleep because of such and such. And, and, and you might tell them the story of, of, of your night's sleep or it might be a bigger one. You know, you, you tell them the story of your education or of your relationship or of your illness or whatever. But we constantly, constantly tell pe um, each other stories. So um, we know that stories need a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, we know that, uh, you know, they provide descriptions and explanations. And I think one of the things that it's useful to keep in mind as a researcher is to understand the, the narratives that people produce in research as um, as processes of theorising, that actually that's, you know, that our participants are developing explanations um, for us and are drawing on a whole range of different disciplinary knowledge. So I may say, well, I had a bad night's sleep because I had too much coffee. But that just simple statement that we all say to each other is predicated on this idea that I understand the impacts of caffeine on my system and that I understand the, the relationship between substances and sleep quality and brain activity and so on and so forth. I'm drawing on quite quite specific um, disciplinary knowledge in, in formulating that story about my night's sleep. So um, I think it, whether people are shy or not, it's, it's, it's less about that. It's about how... Um, we, uh, again, coming back to this point before, how we're going to be able to support people in providing the stories that, that they will want, that they want to tell. So it doesn't really require speaking sometimes. So for some people, they might not be able to speak. Um, but so we might be using, um, uh, you know, physical materials, plasticine even, or something like that we could, we, we could use, or, or Lego, you could use Lego to build build a story or build stages or um, life history maps or uh, you know uh, you know these sorts of, all, all sorts of things but things like poems songs films these are all forms of storifying um, that we can encourage people um, to do so these sorts of approaches are a great way to see how people understand the conventions of storytelling and what they will put forward as moments of drama. So that's, that's uh, I'm now shifting us on, towards um, analysis here, rather than, you know, uh, the bit about how do we get people to participate. But that's something that's good to, to bear in mind. I, I think, sorry, Donica, I just did want to say, um, what doesn't seem to be happening is, is research that collects the stories people have already written or recorded. So people constantly write short stories, novels, autobiographies. There are all lots of informal um, autobiographical materials in most people's houses. They've recorded something about their lives already. So I think that's quite a rich source to draw on when perhaps people don't have the words anymore. Sure. And could you envisage a time maybe where people's Facebook uh, channels are their other social media channels will be really rich sources of, of their life story. Yeah, well, for, I think for the last 10 years, there have been various software programs that diarise people's um, 
social media participation. Um, so drawing across all of their um, social media platforms and engagement in order to link across how they might have used Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter and, and Facebook around particular events such as a birthday or something and how that might have been represented. Because that is one of the concerns of everything going digital is that all of those incidental written things, love letters for example, you know, which are just either texts or even emojis now um you know that those sort of get lost and and obscured um through digital participation okay fantastic so i've been thinking about how you actually practically analyze the information that you collect but i i think you've you've sort of said that it depends on what way you collect it so it's not always language and i'm, I'm still struggling with how would you practically analyze if information was collected, such as using, say, plasticine models or, or even um, art. Now, this is showing my ignorance of art and how to interpret art. Yeah. But can you give us an insight how you might do it if it's not language? Uh, so um, with things like plasticine, you might take photos of them. So even though the objects may disappear, you've nevertheless got a record. Um, you might uh, have recorded, um, video recorded the process of making um, uh, to see if there was any conversation, what sorts of exchanges there were. Um, with art and pictures, you can ask children or older people to explain what they mean, you know, or, you know, why they drew it in that way, why the representation um, takes on that form. And so you have both, again, a form of engagement, which is explanatory and articulates um, particular ideas and meanings that that person that person holds so those sorts of outputs are hugely distinctive but it's you know unique to that individual but nevertheless uh, contribute to broader tropes storytelling tropes or or, or, or mechanisms really or means of, of telling or showing stories Okay, and so there's almost two types of information that I have in mind collected, the, the story itself, and then maybe information about the story, and what was going through the person's mind during that process. Is there a third layer? Can you combine those pieces of information with, with other information to further triangulate or to further inform your research? Mm. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to step back here. Um, I think that a really common pitfall um, in research generally is that people seem to feel that it's only in fieldwork that data are generated or evidence is generated. And that's hugely problematic. It's problematic for the language of scholarship, for example, or disciplinary excellence and expertise. <laughs> We've done a huge amount of learning and analysis already before we even get to the research encounter. Um, so fieldwork isn't the only crucible in, in which research happens. So the whole busy dynamic of getting the research going, finding your way through existing evidence and scholarship, finding your way to those participants through all of the different relationships and catches research is an absolute exemplar in this respect and different settings. All of that is your research data. It's all of that is, is a different forms of evidence and so your job as a researcher is to make sense of how you can use all this evidence to speak to your research question. Okay thank you and you mentioned how Katia's work is, a, is an excellent exemplar of this and, and Katia on, on to you um, are you ready for some quick fire questions? Of course. <laughs> did, did people find it hard to tell their stories when you were working with them? Well to be honest I really had the feeling that most people loved it. They were happy to get time to share their stories, to tell what they wanted to tell and the personal attention that they actually got for a moment. So it's been, yeah, it's, it's been a treat for them as soon as everything was in place, of course. And I think what also helps is we use this um, method in our conversations called appreciative inquiry in which we address the conversation from a positive perspective. So appreciative inquiry says you should look at what is going well and how can we do more of this instead of focusing on the negative, which often when it comes to quality assessment, people are asking themselves, what isn't going well, how can we fix this? Whereas you can also look what is going well and how can we do more of this? Henceforth, you will be doing less of the things that aren't, yeah, aren't sure. good. 
Sure, I love that idea. <laughs> I'm going I'm to try and apply that to all areas of my life. <laughs> did you mentioned about um, there? You said that they generally they did really enjoy the process once things were in place. Now, what sort of things did you need to get in place to support people to share their stories? Um, I think it's important in general to have a safe environment. So that's, for example, why we made the decision to have the respondents uh, to interview them separately, not together. Because a resident may not be comfortable telling what he or she really thinks if his caregiver is there. And I think an additional factor is it still is research. So, for example, when we do this on a ward, we don't ask all residents, but we have to do randomization uh, to get a, a, yeah, a representable sample size. And then you need to see if these people that are the first in your randomization list want to participate and if their family wants to participate and the caregiver and there's informed consent. So it's still, I mean, I think it's with any research, but it is still research. So yeah, you need to put a lot in place. And then there's still the external interviewer that has to be available to perform these conversations. And it's also at the moment, I think it's the same in, uh, in the UK as here, there's quite some staff shortages. So any hour that they cannot take care of their own residents is of course a loss. Yet we also, yeah, they also see the benefit of performing these conversations. So these are some of the challenges we've had to overcome. And and you mentioned it in the challenges, just the research, the, the very nature of it. Did you find that you could be flexible with the actual location where you did the the, the method gathering? And could you, could you go outside, for example, if it was a nice sunny day or was that bound by confidentiality or, or other protocol reasons? Uh, I think it should be possible. However, you do have the challenges of re residents, yeah, especially with, in the Netherlands, at least in dementia wards, you can't always just take a resident out of the ward. And family members, we do often also provide them the opportunity to have the conversation by phone, for example, especially in these COVID times. So that's been helpful. And caregivers, well, usually they're so busy, they'd rather just have it, yeah, like have a quick conversation in that work spot than to really take the time for it, unfortunately. But yeah, the time pressures are, are shared with the with the UK here and, and Ireland, I think. And um, did you find in general that one discussion was enough or did you tend to go back to the same people multiple times? Um, surprisingly, we've seen that on average, our conversations only take 20 minutes, which is much shorter than you'd expect when you are talking about narratives. Yet, I think because of the framework, and we do have quite a clear research question, we want to know how they experience the quality of care. That doesn't mean there's no space for someone's life history. However, this isn't our focus. So you can, you can get to the core quite quickly. And we see in our analysis that, of course, sometimes you'd like to know a bit more, you'd like to go deeper, but you can do that when you give the stories back for quality improvement initiatives. You don't need to do that within your data collection which makes it quite usable in practice. Okay, thank you. Last question for you, Katya. What might you do with the information or stories once this study is finished? Well, I think very important actually in our, our whole study is that the main objective is maybe not even to collect the stories for research, but it is to collect the stories for quality improvement initiatives. And I think that's also linked to the view of our living lab. We do our research in order to help practice. So what we do is we discuss with the, with the world where we've performed the conversations, how they would like to get the data back. We've also, we're actually experimenting with um, text analysis, like text mining, to actually anal analyze these transcripts on a different level. And we've also developed a matrix to plot these um, triangular interviews on a, um, in a graph in which you actually can see to, to which extent do the perspectives agree with each other or not, and to which extent are they positive or negative. And these are forms of analysis that we give back to the wards, and they can use this with the stories themselves to, to decide what do we want to work on? What are we proud of? What would we maybe like to improve? And I think that that makes it very, very valuable.
Okay, so that's been a fantastic conversation. It's not over, but I just wanted to recap on what we've learned so far. A couple of points. Uh, one important one being that oral histories and storytelling are distinct and different uh, methods. It's not one method. They're importantly different. Uh, another very important one for me was that uh, Katia's team use a relationship-centred care and they focus on a care triad. And this, this has benefits uh, for improving communication across the team. And a third learning point for me was this term appreciative inquiry. And it's something that I'm going to try and carry on through in, the, in, in all areas that I can apply it. So in this final part of the show, we're going to discuss common pitfalls, challenges and how to avoid them, which when it comes to this research method, I can imagine that there might be a few. Katya, tell us what challenges did you come across in delivering your research and what might you do differently? Yeah, I think this is a, a very good question because this is also how other researchers can learn and maybe not make the same mistakes. I think part of this I have already uh, addressed. For example, you need to make sure that you have a good uh, sample size because otherwise your results probably are biased over the word. And another thing that I haven't addressed yet is that it's also very important with my research, for example, there are a lot of stakeholders involved and still actually are. That already starts within the care triad. Each, each uh, participant has different needs. The nursing home has different needs. In the Netherlands, you're required to assess quality of care from the resident's perspective. So there's also the accountability that you need to account for. And henceforth, I think it's very important to involve all your stakeholders throughout your research, but also dare to not incorporate all their feedback because it's impossible. <laughs> so you need to make sure you know what everyone wants, and then you need to also decide on which path you're going to take and stick to that because otherwise you're going to have a lot of pitfalls along the way. So, for example, we decided to really stick to the resident perspective and to just stay close to the triad and that eventually you can use that for accountability. That's great. If you would look from an organizational perspective, you would never use stories because stories are such rich data, you would never be able to get to that aim. So therefore, I think it's important to know what all your stakeholders want and explain to them the choices you've made. but. You need to also dare to not follow everyone's needs because then you, yeah, you'll be missing opportunities as well. Wonderful. Now, Karen, Katya mentioned a couple of pitfalls there, such as uh, not sticking with the resident's perspective or not staying close to the triad. Do, are there other common pitfalls that you've seen? And, and if so, how do you avoid them? Yeah, um, say there are some more general methodological ones. So analytically, uh, when we're either dealing with um, oral histories or storytelling, um, we're focused on generating linear narratives. And it's potentially problematic because it might build in causality. So where the relationships between different dimension of it, dimensions of experience might not be causal, um, but express something quite different. So how people may link some aspects of their lives with others, might you, we may treat them problematically um, as researchers. Um, I think also with structuring people's accounts in particular ways, we always will, we're always asking questions. That's when they know that we want to research them, we've got particular research aims. That's why we give them information sheets, <laughs> you know, we tell them. We need informed consent, so we have to tell them what we're doing. Um, so um, my preference, however, is trying to keep things as wide as possible because it can be a bit of an echo chamber where our expectations as researchers might overwhelm our participants' own narratives. But I do think, I mean, we're too, treating two very different methodologies here. So one, the oral history tradition is to keep as wide as you possibly can. You want to cast your net wide because you want to gather as much information about the world in which this person was living through. And, and for that, you need a lot of time. And so there are some pragmatic considerations there, which is, is particularly in the context of dementias, less one around memory, because they may well have very good memories about early, early parts of their lives. Um, but about stamina and endurance, you know, if we're asking them to, to, to talk for quite a long time. Um, and then obviously with storytelling, uh, the inclination is 
against being too wide and too broad because what we want to do is is people to produce a, a connected narrative and set of explanations about a given a given set of events so um you know I, so i think it's worthwhile at this point teasing out those differences between those two methodological approaches and the different challenges that might um uh, 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 um, apply to each of them. Okay. Now, that might be something that in the final segment you might be able to to pick apart, Karen, because I think for time we're running on to the, the final one-minute segment where you tell our listeners what they should go away and read to further their knowledge on this method. Again, two methods. Um, so uh, the oral history website uh, the whole history society sorry have a website um and our, the links can be shared and that's an absolute brilliant resource for anyone to dip into they also run some fee paying courses on the method on oral history methods um anything by joanna borna um who is an oral historian and her work her work is absolutely fantastic on talking through the implications of of um oral history the National Centre for Research Methods have a host of research methods resources that are free to use on oral histories and they too run um, methods training programmes so it's good to check there and also have a look at the work of Rachel Thompson. She's she's written loads and she's done stuff about, uh, she's done blog uh, podcasts as well, um, various things about oral histories and storytelling. Um, in terms of storytelling specifically and how we collectively build stories, I think that uh, the perfect starting point is, is Ken Plummer's Documents of Life. Um, and he's got a website um, that is absolutely dripping with resources. It's very, very rich resource in and of itself in which he tells his own stories. So it's a lovely place to start. Fantastic. Folks, this has been a brilliant first episode of our second season. I've learned so much. It's made me want to run out into the street with, a, with, my, with my phone on record and start capturing these stories. It's been so fascinating. I hope you've both enjoyed it. I'm sure listeners have too. If listeners want to know more about oral histories and storytelling methodology and narrative inquiry and perspective triangulation, or more about the National Centre for Research Methods, Dementia Research, and our guests today, you will find all the links in the show notes. And remember, if you found this useful and learned some stuff, then please share this podcast with your friends and or leave a review online and subscribe to the Dementia Researcher podcast. That is all we have time for today. I would like to say a huge thank you to our guests. We've had the wonderfully helpful Dr. Katya Sion sharing her experiences and in Expert Corner, the incredible Dr. Karen Hughes. Thank you both. It has been a pleasure. 